Well, praise God. We're going to go ahead and continue this morning with our sermon, or our series, in uh, the book of Romans. And we've made it all the way to chapter 9. Well over halfway there. Probably got a few more weeks of this. But uh, I've entitled this one, The Decisions of God. Because we're going to look into a, a, rather, a rather tough... Um, a tough message this morning, and not tough in the sense it's hard for us, but it's hard to kind of wrap your head around what's going on here. And it's the decisions that God's make, that God makes in His sovereign. <laughs> yeah, I already started. His sovereign decisions that He makes, and uh, basically His sovereign choice, His election, and, and that's a tough thing to look at because there's there's some people that believe that there's only a a small group of elect that can be saved. There's only a small group that God has chosen to save, and the rest of society, no matter what they, they want to do, no matter what they can do, there's, there's nothing for them. They can't be saved. And we're going to look at that today and, and what the Scripture actually says. Last chapter we looked at in, in chapter 8 is how we become adopted into God's family as sons, and as such how we enjoy being an heir to, to all that entails, to, to everything that God has for us. The other thing we're going to deal with in this chapter is Paul deals with the Jews' basically grand objection that, hey, we're the chosen people of God. Why do the Gentiles get included? No, this is us. This is our thing. You know, this is blasphemy to say that, that God loves the Gentiles too. You know, it's a little bit of uh, national pride we got going on and probably a little bit of, of jealousy. And, and ultimately, they thought that the Gentiles just weren't worthy of God. They just weren't worthy. I mean, we are the chosen people. You know, and we look at this and we're like, oh, Jews, you silly Jews, what are you guys doing? That's just crazy talk. We know God loves everybody. But the truth is that, that we often do the exact same thing. We, we look around us and, and maybe we choose not to witness to somebody because of how they look or, or maybe they're not good or maybe they don't have enough money or maybe they don't, you know, all these things we look at and, and, and we can fall guilty of the same things and try to choose for God who can be allowed into the kingdom of heaven. Matter of fact, there's entire movies written about jealousy and, and how that... Uh, you know, when you want something so bad that not only if you can't have it, but nobody else can have it either. You know, there's this idea that uh, if I can't have it, nobody can. And that's the kind of the Jews are dealing with as well. This is for us. And then there might be sometimes where we're worried that if, if, uh, if God blesses somebody else, is there going to be enough left for me? You know, we're all, there's that concern that maybe God's uh, resources are finite and, and if He helps us, if He gives it to us, what is He going to do for me? If we give everything to somebody else, now we want to we keep it for ourselves. But the truth is that, that God's love is expressed towards everybody. There's enough of Him to go around. His resources are limitless. You know, and when, and when people are successful, and in this case, the Gentiles were finally being brought in. God was showing His love to the Gentiles. Instead of the Jews being excited for the Gentiles, somebody else being brought in, they were, they were upset. It's like when somebody at work gets a raise, and you're like, you're upset that they got a raise and you didn't. You know, they got something, and that's what the Jews are going through. And, but the truth is, Paul's going to deal with that and say, you know what? God loves everybody. God, this, is, this salvation is for everybody. So the first scripture we're going to look at is Romans 9, 1 through 5. He says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. You know, Paul first wants to, to start off, and, and he wants to know that, hey, look, I'm telling the truth. I want you to hear me. This is not something I'm making up. I'm not trying to patronize you guys. I'm telling the truth. I am not lying. And he begins to go on to say that he has great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I wish that I myself were a curse, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, kinsmen according to the flesh. This is the kind of love that you just don't see every day. This is the kind of love that is only possible in Christ. You know, the, the, the Bible says that in 1 John 4.19, says, We love because He first loved us. You know, the reason why he has to make this assertion, this I'm telling the truth, is because the traditional Jew at the time thought he was a heretic, thought he was a blasphemer. They hated him and they hated what he was preaching because 
God wasn't for the Gentiles. God was for the Jews. But not only, and this is the amazing part, is, is that not only did he still care for those who hated him so much, that he loved those people that hated him so much, but he was willing to give up his own eternal salvation, his own salvation for them. Can you imagine that kind of love? How many here would be willing to give up your salvation for the world around you? I have to admit, I don't think that's something that I would be willing to do. This, this love here is amazing, and this love is only possible with Christ. But he was willing to give up his own salvation for people, and not just people, but people that hated him. They hated who he was. They wanted to kill him. Matter of fact, they end up killing him, and they try. His whole, his whole uh, evangelistic careers, they try to kill him the whole time, put him in prison, stone him. But he says, even, even then, I'm willing to give up everything for them. You know, this is also the same attitude that we saw in Moses in, in the book of Exodus, chapter 32, verses 30 through 33. It says, On the next day Moses said to the people, You yourselves have committed a great sin, and now I'm going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin, and they have made a god of gold for themselves. But now, if you will forgive their sin, and if not, please blot me out from your book for which you have written these men of God, that we were these great men of God. And I want you to know that, that we look at this and we think, man, these are some amazing people, but they're no different than you and I. All they have is the love of God has gripped them in their heart. They see these people as God sees these people. Because you know what? This is the exact same thing that God did for you. He sent himself, he sent his son to die for you, to give up everything. The Bible says that he didn't consider deity something worth grasping. He, he gave up his deity so that way he could... That way he could go and, and, and make you whole, make you pure, make you holy. And Moses and Paul, they have the same attitude that I'm willing to, to give everything for you. In Philippians 1, 22-24, we also see that this isn't just Paul's heart towards unbelievers, but this is also his heart towards believers. He says, but if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Once again, Paul here is at the end of his, his, his life, and he's, he's saying, you know what, I would really like to just go be with Jesus. But instead of just giving up, taking the easy way out and going, because that would be the better thing. It's, it would be better for me to be with Jesus. He said, I, I'll remain here because it's more necessary for your sake. This, this heart that Paul has is an incredible model for the heart that we should have for believers. The question we should ask is, do I have a heart like this? Do I see the world around me and, and want to give everything that I have so that they could be made whole? Do I look around me and see people that are, that are sinning or doing differently than me and, and do I look at them with judgmental eyes? Do I look down on them or do I, do I see a people and hurt for them, wanting for them the same thing that I have? You know, this is a tough question because as we go through our lives, sometimes it's hard to, to see people the way that God sees them. But it's something that I, I continue to pray, and I would encourage you to continue to pray is that God would give you a heart like His and give you eyes like His to see the world as He sees the world and see people as, as not as, as just filthy sinners, but see them as people that God sent His Son to die for. You know, we can't value people any less than that because that's what God valued those people. God valued them enough that He sent His Son that they would die for Him, and we should think nothing less of them. And then here we go to find out that Paul still, even in this, doesn't, doesn't downplay the role of the Jews, even though that they're having some troubles, even though that they're rejecting Jesus Christ. He still says that you were the chosen people. He's not saying that you're no longer chosen. Matter of fact, the Jews are, were still God's chosen people. And it says that they are Israelites, and they belong to the adoption of sons. The same right that we have being adopted into the family, the Jews had that right as well. And they were given the covenants, and they were given the law. They were given temple services and promises. And they are the fathers, and from whom is Christ according to the flesh. The Jews are the lineage that Jesus Christ came from. What, imagine the honor that that is. Jesus Christ was born through the Jews. And what I find most interesting is that Paul was willing to give up his salvation so that they would have something that they already had. 
They were already adopted as sons. They were already given the promises. They just had to receive them. He wasn't, he wasn't, he wasn't uh, willing to give up everything so God would, would concede and let them have it as well, but he was just willing to give everything just so they would see that they already had it. And then we also find in the last verse here is that Christ's deity is proclaimed. He says, Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all God blessed forever? Jesus Christ is God. In Romans, in the same verse in the New King James Version, it, it translated this, Christ came who is over all the eternally blessed God. The New Living Translation says that, and He is God, the one who rules over everything and is worthy of eternal praise. And the English Standard Version says, He is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. You know, there's a lot of people that think that Jesus was just a good man, or he was a prophet, or he was just a great teacher. But the truth is that, that Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. He came as man so he could pay the penalty that we should have paid. But he was God all the way. You know, as we look at these scriptures, the question I ask is, is do we hurt for those who don't know Jesus? Do we have a longing to reach out for them? Do we have a concern not only for their physical well-being, but do we also have a concern for their spiritual well-being, even at our own risk? In Luke 15, 3-7, it says, So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. You know, when people get saved, heaven rejoices. When people come home, heaven rejoices. And having a heart for the lost, having a heart for the world is just a reflection of God's heart in us. You say, I, I can't, Pastor, I can't feel that way for people. That's not who I am. I want you to know that you've been given a brand new heart, and that is who you are. And the truth is that having this kind of heart for good people is, is easy. You know, if, they, if they're good people, it's, it's pretty easy to, uh, to like people that are likable. It's pretty easy to love people that are lovable. But the truth is there's a lot of the people in this world that just aren't likable. Or they aren't lovable. At least according to human standards, to man's standards. But God loves them just the same. Also, when people do give their life to the Lord, we need to begin to, to view them differently. Paul says that I, I, uh, I resolve to know no one except for according to Christ. You know, when, when you gave your life to the Lord, there were plenty of, pe- plenty of people that looked at you and said, I know who you used to be. This is not who you are. And you can say, no, that was the old me. He's dead and gone. I'm a brand new person. This is me now. But we need to be careful that we don't view other people like that as well, that when, when people give their lives to the Lord, we begin to see them as, as Christ in them instead of being persuaded by who they used to be, the things they used to do. This means that we need to express this love as often as we have the chance. People need to see Christ's love in us. And the truth is, we'll only express that love if we, if we see them as God does. Colossians 4.5 says, Conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Are we taking every opportunity to, to reach out to people, to, to touch the lost, to make an impact in their lives? And it's not always easy, because sometimes we need to forgive. There's people that have hurt us, and we need to forgive so that we can, we can touch them and make an impact in their lives. And sometimes it means that we would do things that the world would call us crazy for. You know, if you think about it, what I do every Sunday morning is crazy considering what the world says. I open my home to anybody that wants to come in so that I can share the love of Christ with them. I don't know when you guys first, I don't know you guys when you first showed up. I don't know anything about you. But I see you as God sees you. And George, every, every Wednesday when we have Bible study at your house, you're willing to open your house to anybody that will come in. And you don't realize the impact that this makes on people's lives. I remember when we had a life group in, in Rita Ranch, we, uh, we had Squeaky G there. Squeaky G is that, you guys, you guys will meet him, I promise. But he's a, uh, he's a Christian rapper, and, and he was coming to our life group, and he came out, and he, he was he, he would just, the, one of the most amazing evangelists I've ever seen in my entire life. He's just, he is an evangelist. He can, 
we could learn a lot from how he interacts with people. And, and he was out on the street that day and saw three skaters out there in the skateboards, baggy jeans, you know, not, not the, the greatest looking, probably not the people you'd invite into your house normally. And uh, he brought them to Life Group, and, and, we, and we had them come in, you know. We're, praise God, we got new, seeing new faces. This is amazing. And I, I didn't even think much about it, because that's just what we did. This fly is going to drive me crazy. <laughs> but that's just what we did. We let them in, and when we were at the end of it, we were praying for people, and the, the guy was, what I would imagine, was kind of the, the boldest of the three. He was kind of the, you know, the... When you have a group of kids, there's always the one that's kind of the leader. And, and at the end of it, he, he thanked us. And he told us how much, how touched he was that, that we would let him in. He would let him in our house. We didn't know who he was. We didn't know anything about him. You know, and he had never felt that. Kind of, he never, never had that love expressed towards him. Someone that didn't even know him, cared about him enough to let them into the house and, and to, to eat with us and to spend time with us. You know what? He gave his life to the Lord that night. We make an impact on people by showing them the love of Christ. In Romans 9, 6-9 it says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise, regardless as descendants, for this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. All right, you guys ready to buckle up? Because we're going to get into some, some theological stuff as we go forward to the next few verses. This is, some, uh, this is not the kind of stuff you read, and it, it just comes naturally. So we're going we're gonna to dig into this a little bit. First thing to recognize is the Jews were the God's chosen people of the Old Testament. God chose the Jewish people to bring the bearers of his law to, like we said, he, he was, they were given the temple, they were given the worship service, they were given the law, and ultimately Jesus came through the lineage of the Jewish people. But what happened? In the end, even though Jesus came through them and they had the law, they had all the prophecies, that everything that proclaimed Jesus was coming, they rejected him and they crucified him. And we look at him and we're like, man, you guys are crazy. What were you thinking? It's, just, it's so obvious. We look at the word now in hindsight. It's, it's so obvious. And the truth is, to a point it was to them, because when Herod was looking for Jesus, he, he sent to the Jewish scholars and said, tell me, where will you be born? And they were able to tell him where Jesus was going to be born and when. And, but the Jews aren't so different than us. Because how many times have we missed God's best for us because we lack patience or disregarded his word? It's like a man crossing the desert, and he's, he's, he's dying of dehydration, and, and he comes up to this, to this water pump next to an old shack, and right next to it, there's a, a jug of water, and if you know anything about water pumps, you can't just start cranking on a water pump. You actually have to prime the pump so that water can be poured out of it, is that the old, you know, hand crank pumps, and there's a jug of water sitting right next to it with a gallon of water that says, there's a note on it that says, this water is just enough to prime the pump. As long as you don't drink any of it. It's just enough. And what I'm asking you to do is you pour this water into the pump and you drink as much as you want. This, this well never runs dry. This pump always has water. No matter what season, no matter what, this pump has water. But you have to pour out this jug of water. And as far as you're concerned, that's the only water that you see. You have to trust that the person who left that note is going to, to be telling the truth. And if you pour the water in, you will have water. This is the only thing that I ask that you do is, is you fill the jug back up. So that that way the next person can, can have the same courtesy. So the truth is, if, if this man follows those instructions, he takes the chance that there's no water in that well. He takes the chance that he's going to pour out every last little bit of what he sees in front of him. But I thank God that God's promises are always reliable. And that when we, we take the, what the world would consider a risk, it's actually no risk at all. If we trust God enough to obey Him and to wait upon Him even while He goes out about fulfilling His promises in His perfect time, the truth is that, that God's promises will come to pass. With God, it's not a matter of if, but it's a matter of when. Amen? So then Paul begins to ask the question that if God's word was for the Jews and they rejected Him, does that mean that His word has failed? And the answer is no. 
Because it's, truthfully, the promises do not come to those who were born of Abraham. So that's the thing that we, we get involved with, with the Jews is they thought that, that their, their salvation was due to their national heritage. Their salvation was due to the, to the physical lineage they could draw back to Abraham. But Paul says, you know, you guys are confused. You should know better than that because it's not the physical lineage that, that gets you the promise because the truth is that the Bible says that Isaac, your descendants, will be named through Isaac, which was, as we know, one of two of Abraham's sons. You know, that the people that came through Ishmael, the, 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 the civilization that, that was descended through Ishmael, they did not inherit the promises of God, even though they were a descendant of Abraham, right? The truth is the promise never came through the physical lineage, but it came through the promise, God's choice. God chose it to be the son of the promise through Isaac. It had nothing to do with being a physical descendant of Abraham, but it, was, it relied on two things. One, the person, they had to be chosen, and we know that the descendants through, descendants through Isaac were chosen, and that they had to keep the covenant. All of Ishmael's lineage is a physical descendant of Abraham, but they were not partakers of the promise because they weren't chosen. God made the choice. And as we talk about this choice that God made, I'm going to leave it where it is right now, and we'll deal with the choices that God made here in, in a few scriptures down the road. But one thing I want to make very clear is what, he, what Paul's dealing with is not that God chooses some to be saved and chooses others not to be saved. That is not what Paul's dealing with here. But he is showing that God does have the right to make choices. It's God has the sovereign right to choose as he wishes. And that's the point really Paul's trying to make through all this. In Romans 9, 10-13 it says, And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. So here we find another example of, of God making a sovereign choice. And it's a choice that he made according to, to his will and according to his, his good mind and his good decision and what he deemed appropriate. You see, these two babies weren't even born yet. They had not had any time to live their life, to make any decisions. One wasn't better than the other. They, 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 were, they were from the same parents. They were actually twins. Not even born yet. Yet God had made a decision that, that it would be through Jacob and not Esau not according to their conduct or actions, but according to God's choice. So the point that Paul is trying to make here is that God is the one who gets to choose. Because right now, the Jews were trying to choose. Salvation is for us, not for the Gentiles. But Paul's saying, no, you men is not the one who gets to, to make the decision. It's actually God who chooses who receives the promise and who does not. Also, we need to be aware here that that Paul's not actually dealing with the two, the two individual people. When it says here that the older will serve the younger and Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, he's not talking about the two brothers. He's actually talking about the two nations that would be descendants of these two brothers. In Genesis 25, 23, it says, The Lord said to her, and this is uh, God speaking to Rebecca, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. That's what he's quoting from right here. Talking about two nations. Malachi 1, 2 through 3. It says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, and I have made these mountains desolation, and appointed his inheritance to the jackals in the wilderness. Once again, we're dealing with the two nations that he was talking about. And I also want to point out that oftentimes we see this word that, you know, God hated. And we're like, how can God hate anybody? That's terrible. But you have to remember, as we, as we use other scripture to, to deal with what's going on, that what he's talking about is in comparison. So do you remember in, uh, in Luke 14, 26, when, when Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple? How many know that Jesus doesn't want you to hate your family? 
That's not what he was getting at. What he's saying is, in comparison to your love for me, your love for everybody else should be almost like hate. I mean, that's the disparity that there should be the difference. Is compared to your love for me, it should be like you even hate your family. But it doesn't mean you should hate your family. You still love your family, right? Matter of fact, the Bible says that, that anyone who does not take care of his family is worse than an unbeliever. So God, God cares that you take care of your family. And in the same way here, he says that Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. It doesn't mean that he hated these people and he's throwing fireballs at them and he's just going to you know, stuff them under a rug and ignore them. What he's saying is, in comparison to the two, my blessing, my promises were for Jacob. So then Paul asks the question, is God unjust in Romans 9, 14 through 18? Because he's making these decisions, is God unjust? What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? What's the answer? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, and then in my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. So the question remains, is God unjust? If God takes two people and chooses to bless one or, or give grace to one and not to the other, does that mean he's acting unjust? So the truth is election is always a matter of grace. If God acted based on solely on self-righteousness and how good that we could do, no one would ever make it. No one would ever be saved. None of us could ever be good enough. The truth is that all of these people that he's talking about, these people he's making decisions from, the truth is they're all sinners. And they were all unworthy. And they all deserved to die because the wages of sin is death. But he chose the specific people to, to bless them and to make promises toward them. Does that mean God is unjust? No, because he's not, he's not giving somebody what they... You know, he's not giving something they didn't deserve in the sense of punishment or anything like that. Because the truth is they all deserved to, to, be, uh, to die, to, to not have salvation. It's not unrighteous to extend grace to somebody and not another. If you're going down the street and you see a homeless person on the side of the road and you give them something to eat, but you don't feed every homeless person in the city of Tucson, does that mean that you're being unjust? Does that mean that you're a bad person and you're acting unbecoming of someone who's a good person? I don't think any of us would think that, but we, but we oftentimes we look at God and we think, oh, if he's treating one person better than the other, he's, he's being unfair, he's being unjust. And there's an experiment that's done with two men. And if you give two men, or you give one man, ten one dollar bills, and you say to this man that, you have to give at least one, but you can give as many as you want, but you have to give at least one dollar bill to this man over here who has none. The outcome is almost always mathematically weird. And the reason I say this is because the best position that both of them could be in would be that the man that has to give at least one dollar would give one dollar. And that's the best for everybody. Why? Because the man that didn't have anything now has one dollar, which is more than he had, right? So that's good for him. And the man who was required to give some of his money away gave the least amount away that he could. So that is good for him, right? Mathematically, that is the best position they could both be in. But as people, we have this idea of fairness and what it means for us to be fair is, oh no, he should give, he should give half. Matter of fact, as I was telling you this story, your first thought was, oh, he got $10, he should give half to the other one. I imagine that's what you were thinking. Am I right? That would be the best option. That's how we think. So we think that when God is being nice to one person and not the other, somehow he's being unjust. Much like the, the parable of the workers who work different lengths of time. Do you remember the parable of the workers in the, in the wine field that Jesus said in, in Matthew 20, 13 through 15? And he had the, 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 the uh, field owner went out and he saw the people looking for work and he says, I'll give you a day's wage to go work in my field. And they agreed and went to work in the field. And about midday, he saw another group of people that didn't have anything to do and he says, I would like you to go work in my field. And they went to go work in the field. And, and just about an hour before the work day closed, he sees another group of people and he walks up to them and says, I would like you to go work in my field if you have nothing to do. So they go and work in the field. So then at the, the end of the day, he's standing with all the workers and he starts with the ones that, that were not paid very much, that didn't work very much, they had only worked an hour, and he gave them a full denarius, which is a, a denarii, which is a full day's wage. And the people that have worked longer are excited now because if he gave the guys that just worked an hour a full day's wage, what's he going to give us? But then he got to the people that worked half the day and he, he gave them just a full day's wage. 
And then he got to the people that worked the entire day and he paid them just a full day's wage. And they were upset because they expected to receive more. But in verse 13, Matthew 20, verse 13, it says, But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or are you envious because I am generous? You know, and that's kind of how we look at what God did when he chose one person, one group over another. We think that he's being unjust, but he's not. And then we have Exodus 33, verses 19, quoted by Paul. He says, And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim the name of the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. So many people use these verses to try to argue that there is a subset of people that God loves more than everybody else and they are the only ones that are allowed to have salvation, that they are God's elect and and everybody else is just, they're out of luck. There's nothing they can do about it no matter what. They can't be saved. There's actually people that believe this way, that there's there's a subset, there's a group of God's elect. But that's not what Paul's arguing here. What Paul's arguing is that it is not man who gets to choose what God does. But it is God who gets to choose. He's arguing for, for the sovereignty of God's choices, not arguing that there's only a certain amount of people that can accept Jesus Christ in the heart and that, that these are the people that God wants saved and everybody else is out of luck. And then we also have some, some more, uh, more quotes here from when he's talking about Pharaoh. And basically here we have is, is Pharaoh, talking about Pharaoh being raised up. So here's another time that, that God made some choices. <coughs> you remember that Moses and Pharaoh were both sinners, right? Moses and Pharaoh were actually both murderers. Moses was a murderer. Yet Moses and his people received God's mercy and compassion, but Pharaoh lost. The Bible says that, that God rose up Pharaoh for this purpose, to demonstrate my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. You see, we look at this and we think that, that basically God set Pharaoh up for failure. That's what we think, that God set him up. Why would God do something like that? That doesn't seem very fair. But the truth is that, that 15 times in the Old Testament it says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Sometimes it says he hardened it himself. Sometimes it says that God hardened his heart. And the truth is, when, when somebody hardens your heart, it's actually the choices that you make that's happening. You know, when you go tell your kids to clean your room, if they get all upset and they run upstairs and they ignore you and do whatever they want, you could say that you hardened your kid's heart. But was it your choice, what you told them to do, or was it their choice to ignore you and, and push back that hardened their heart? Ultimately, it was their decision that hardened their heart. You know what I think, God, when I, when I look at what God's life is going, is it, with Pharaoh, it didn't have to happen the way it was. It's true that God raised Pharaoh up to show his power. But it was Pharaoh that hardened his heart and pushed back against God. And ultimately, God had to do some crazy things to Pharaoh to get him to finally release his people. But what if, what if in the beginning, Pharaoh would have repented and turned towards God? God could have still used him to show his power. He had plenty of opportunity to repent, but he did not. As we continue on in Romans 9, 19 through 21, it says, You will say to me, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, a man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for, for honorable use and another for common use? Now Paul's getting into to some ridiculous examples. Because imagine with me what Paul's trying to make these Jews think. Basically trying to tell them they're silly for thinking this way. Can you imagine a, an incredible sculptor or a potter? You know, he's making pot and he's making this beautiful pot and he's got the wheel going. And the wheel just stops and the pot turns around to him and says, Yeah, could you bring in my waist just a little bit? You know, I'm feeling a little, a little chunky. Could you, I want to look thinner and look a little bit better. And Maybe if you could put some, some really nice design work on me. I mean... 
that's ridiculous to think someone's building something and to turn around. You're painting a picture and, and it stops us. Nah, you know, if you could just go with a little bit less paint here and a little bit more over here. It's a, it's a silly idea that, that this stuff would happen. Yet this is actually what's happening with the Jews when God says, I want to extend my grace to the Gentiles. And they're like, yeah, no, you already extended it to us. We don't think we want you doing that. You know, they're, they're turning to the, to the potter, to the molder, and saying, and I love how he says it, and on the contrary, who are you, a man who answers back to God? You know, I would love to hear Paul spoke, because I imagine that would have been, been said with a, a snarky, sarcastic tone. Speak, sorry. <laughs> oh, praise God. You see, what we're getting to here is the heart of the matter with what Paul's dealing with. Like I said, Paul's not making the argument that salvation is just for a certain group of people, for a certain subset of elect people, but what he's making the argument is God has the choice to do whatever he wants. God has the right to make decisions, not based on what man thinks, but based on his own will, his own good decisions, his own mind. And basically Paul is saying that if we've shown throughout the Old Testament that God was allowed to make decisions however he wanted to make decisions without man having any influence, if now he wants to include the Gentiles, who are you to say that he can't? Who are you to say that God can include the Gentiles into his promises? Especially in this case, he's not excluding the Jews, he's just including the Gentiles. Yet they're upset. And who are you to say that I can't make this decision? That's what Paul is arguing here. But Pastor Wayne, can you be certain salvation is for everybody? Can you be certain that's what he's talking about? Let's look at a few scriptures here. John 3.16, it says, For God so loved just a few people that he gave his own... That's not what it says, right? But God so loved the world. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow about His promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish. Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. I want you to know that salvation is not just for a small group of people, but God has the sovereign choice to extend it to everybody, and He has. Amen? Romans 9, 23-26 says, What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And He did so to make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy, which He prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom He also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. As He says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not My people, My people, and her who is not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in that place where, I was, where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. You know what, I, this prepared for destruction here, it says endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. When we read it in English, it almost gives the impression that God has made certain people to be prepared for destruction, right? But the truth is that, that people smarter than I have said that this Greek writing is actually in the middle voice. I don't know what that means, but I do know that it makes that verb reflexive. And I now know what reflexive means because I'm studying Spanish, and they use a lot of reflexive verbs. It changes the meaning of everything. and makes it very difficult to learn another language. <laughs> However, a reflexive verb means that you are doing something to yourself. So like when you say, I wash myself, that wash is now a reflexive verb. It's being the, the object of the, the action of the verb has been reflected upon yourself. So taking this newfound knowledge that we have, we can now say that much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction actually should be translated more along the lines of vessels of wrath who have prepared themselves for destruction. It kind of changes the entire meaning of that sentence. It's not God who prepared them for destruction, but through the choices that they make, they prepare themselves for destruction. And it says that God is willing to demonstrate he says, although he is willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, he endures much patience, with much patience, people like that. And I thank God for that because there was a time in my life that I was preparing myself for destruction. And I thank God that he had patience with me and, and I had the opportunity to, to uh, receive what he had for me and to make me a brand new man. And I know that was the same with all of you in this room, that if you've accepted Jesus, there was a point that you were preparing yourself as a, as a vessel of wrath. But have you ever wondered why God 
allows unbelievers to speak foolishly about him, to behave in this way. Let me read you a story here. If I can figure out where it starts. It says, when uh, <clears throat> Robert G. Ingersoll was delivering his lecture against Christ in the Bible, his oratorical ability usually assured him of a large crowd. One night after an inflammatory speech in which he severely attacked man's faith in a Savior, he dramatically took out his watch and said, I'll give God a chance to prove that he exists and is almighty. I challenge him to strike me dead within five minutes. First there was silence, and the people became uneasy. Some left the hall, unable to take the nervous strain of the occasion. One woman fainted. At the end of the allocated time, the atheist exclaimed derisively, See, there is no God. I'm still very much alive. Then after the lecture, a young fellow said to a Christian lady, Well, Ingersoll certainly proved something tonight. And he said, A reply was memorable. He says, Yes, he did, she said. He demonstrated that even the most defiant sinner cannot exhaust the patience of the Lord in five minutes. And another man added, As I was coming downtown today, a belligerent little fellow came running out of an alley, daring me to hit him. Do you suppose that I actually struck him just because he challenged me to do so? See, the truth is that God has patience with us. In the same way, he's not going to strike people down because they're acting belligerently. He told him he actually has patience for them, giving them the opportunity to, to, to one day accept his love. God endures those who are evil, those who will never repent, in order to give all the people a chance to repent. The truth is, God could end the world right now, but he is waiting for the vessels of mercy. All those who, are will, who will believe in him to respond. And that's why Jesus is not going to return until the entire world has heard the gospel, until every nation has heard the gospel, as God is demonstrating his patience so that everyone will have an opportunity to respond. And the truth is that the Old Testament is, is as verses pointing to the Gentiles being including all throughout it. The Jews should have known this. And Hosea says, I will call those who were not my people, my people. The Gentiles were not his people, now they are his people. And those who is not beloved, beloved. It says, and it was said to them, you are not my people, but there they should be called sons of the living God. The truth is that, that the Gentiles, it was always part of God's plan to in, in, include the Gentiles. In 2 Peter 3.9 it says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but it is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You know, God is so incredibly patient with us. You know, and he's not, you know, what Peter's saying is he's not slow as the world considers slow concerning his promise. The truth is, he could send Jesus back right now, but there would be so many people who would be lost. We were at a conference a few years back, and, and uh, one of the preachers was preaching, and almost the entire, it was a youth conference, and almost all the youth came up and rededicated or dedicated their lives to Christ for the first time. And I heard somebody saying, man, I wish Jesus would come back right now so that all these young people would make it into heaven. And the first thing that, that hit my heart was, is, no, I don't want Jesus to come back right now because what about all those people who have not had the opportunity? There would be so many people that would be lost if they never had the opportunity. And the truth is, God's patience is shown so many times in the Old Testament. You know the story of Noah. Noah preached for 120 years for people to repent and get on the boat. Nobody did, but he gave them 120 years to repent. That's patience. I only give my kid like three minutes to do what I tell him to do. <laughs> he saw that, that the, the Pharaoh had 15 different times to repent. God was patient with him, even through all that, and he still did not. And you remember the heathen city of Nineveh? He gave them time to repent. They sent Jonah. And matter of fact, Jonah actually converted an entire heathen city to God. In Ezekiel 18.23, God says, Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Rather than that, he should return from his ways and live. Romans 9.27-29 says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sands of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of the Sabbath had left us, to, left us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. 
You know, this, uh, what's being quoted here in, in the, the capital letters is a prophecy that's been fulfilled in the Old Testament. It was fulfilled by the captivity and, and exile of both Israel and Judah. And they were, they were captured, but a, a remnant remained that trusted him. And he rescued those out of the hands of Egypt. And he, he rescued Judah at the time when they were in the captivity in Babylon. The truth is that, that these scriptures are being fulfilled in the Old Testament, but they're still being fulfilled today as well. Because there's a remnant of Jewish people who accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. There's still a remnant of the Jewish people that have, have given their lives to God. But Paul is asking the question that if even in the Old Testament only a remnant of believing Jews were saved, because it wasn't their, their lineage, it wasn't their, their, uh, their family tree back to Abraham that saved them, but it was the remnant that believed that were saved. He says, what assurance are they grasping at regarding the present day Jews? Paul's already shown that being a son of Abraham is not enough. The Old Testament testifies to the same thing. Why would you claim that for yourself as well? Why would you be so assured that just being born of Abraham would guarantee your salvation? And I said today it is still being fulfilled. The Jews are, are coming to Jesus even in this present day, but in the book of Acts, we saw it many times. In Acts 14.1, it says, In Iconium they entered the synagogue of Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both Jews and the Greeks. Acts 17.1-4 says, They traveled through Amphiopolis and Amphilonia, and they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned from them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again for the dead, saying that Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. There's always going to be a remnant that choose to believe, but it has nothing to do about their lineage. It has to do with their willing to trust God, to believe that His Son came for them, to pay for the sins, that they could be made pure and holy. The salvation that they were always longing for is through Jesus Christ. Even when the nation as a whole is turning their back on God, a remnant will still be saved. See, the thing about God is that His choices, while often are very strange to us, as we look at how he did things, I've often thought to myself, why even, why even bring the law? If, if, if the, I mean, God obviously knew that ultimately the law was not going to save anybody. Why even do it? Why even go through it? Why not just bring Jesus in the first place? And oftentimes God's choices are, are strange to us. You know, why didn't he bring Jesus in the first place? Because I think that if Jesus would have came first, we'd all spend our entire life saying, oh, we don't need Jesus. We can do it on our own. Even when we saw for thousands of years nobody could live up to the requirements of God, we still have people thinking they can do it on their own. Could you imagine if we didn't know the requirements of God? We'd all think we could do it on our own. But the truth is that God's choices, the choices He makes, serves His divine purpose. He initially rejected the Jews, or I'm sorry, He initially rejected the Gentiles in favor of the Jews so that salvation could come to the Jews and ultimately save the Gentiles. That's an amazing thing. Romans 9, 30-33 says, For what shall we say then? The Gentiles did not pursue righteousness, attained righteousness, even though righteousness, which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. See, it's interesting to me that the Jews strove for righteousness. They had the law, they knew the requirements, and they strove for righteousness on their own, trying to do what they could to become righteous. And they never attained it, but the, the Gentiles weren't even looking for righteousness. As a matter of fact, they didn't have the law, they didn't even know they were messed up. As we looked at earlier in the book of Romans, it was the law that really pointed out how bad things really were. It's how, it's how we knew how messed up things really were. The Gentiles didn't even know that, but they attained righteousness by faith. But the Jews who were looking for it never, had the, never, never attained it, trying to do it on their own. And what was the big difference? Is the, the Gentiles didn't have any national pride. They didn't have to think that, oh, we're, we're God's chosen people. We, we already have it in the bag. But they trusted God. And just like with Abraham, it was reckoned to them as righteousness. Where on the other hand, the Jews thought that, oh, we're sons of Abraham, we've got, it all, we've got it all together just by being born into this family. Now the truth is, that's not enough. You need to have faith. 
salvation, righteousness, is all a result of faith. If we try to own, we're going to stumble just like the Jews. Matter of fact, Jesus, behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And Jesus was that stumbling stone for the Jews. They couldn't believe that God came down in the flesh. They couldn't believe that even though the scriptures pointed to him the whole time, they couldn't believe it and actually they crucified him. They become a stumbling, st- a stumbling stone for them. They weren't able to, to achieve salvation because they didn't believe he was who he said he was. The truth is that the Jews are a part of God's elect just like we all are. God has chosen at this point to save the entire world. We're all predestined, like we looked at earlier in different books of Romans, we're all predestined or predesigned to be made in the image of Jesus, to be children of God. The question is, will we respond in faith or will we stumble like the Jews? And the scriptures we're going to end on today is Galatians 3, 1 through 3 and 1 John 3, 3. Galatians 3, 1 through 3 says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? See, even Christians can find themselves in the same position the Jews were in, thinking that, that they can add something to what Jesus did. Thinking that, you know, Jesus, what he did was pretty good, but I, I messed up pretty bad, so I'm just going to have to pay for that myself. I'm going to have to feel guilty enough and, 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 just, and just do all these things to make, make it up to God for what I've done. The truth is that, that every writer of the New Testament agrees. Righteousness comes from faith. Paul, Peter, James, John, all through the New Testament, you find out that it's through faith. Are we righteousness? Are we saved? Are we right before God? And it has nothing to do with our works. 1 John 3.3 3, it says, And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. I want you to know this morning that if you've placed your hope and trust in Jesus Christ, that you are pure, that you are holy, you are right before God. But that is the only way that you've become right before God. Amen? Amen. Praise God. Let's go ahead and bow our heads. I'd just like to take this opportunity to, uh, to give everybody a chance to respond. If you're here this morning and you've never given uh, your life to Jesus Christ, Maybe you didn't even know that you had to. You thought that you could live good enough. You thought that you could do the right thing. Maybe you went to church your entire life and you understand that, that, God is the Lord, that Jesus is the Lord and Savior, but He's never been your Lord and Savior because it's a personal thing with God. I want to give you an opportunity this morning to, to uh, accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And if you've not had the opportunity to do that before, just go ahead and, and raise your hand this morning if you'd like to do that this morning. Is there anybody here this morning? Praise God, everyone's saved here this morning. That makes me happy. Let's go ahead and stand to our feet.